Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day. Hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are listening this week. Welcome along to episode 49 of the Howie Games. Now, firstly, if you haven't checked out our back catalogue, please do, including the episodes of our sports documentary series called The Moment. You can easily find it on your Howie Games feed. It has been a tough week this week for Aussie sports, so here's an episode to get you back on the right track with cycling sensation, Animeers. They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. They've got to try, try, try. Anna Mears, what an athlete. These numbers, incredible. Olympics, two gold, a silver and three bronze medals. World championships, 11 golds, 11 plus nine silver and six bronze, plus five Commonwealth Games golds, two silvers and a bronze. Wow, that is a serious body of work. Anna is one very, very tough cookie. She broke her neck in 2008 after a terrible bike crash. Her story of how she came back from that, if that doesn't inspire you, I give up. Nothing will. In sporting circles, Anna's determination is legendary. Her story is one of hard work, financial, physical and emotional stress and intense rivalry, crushing losses and uplifting wins. The way she talks about body image is something I hope many young girls get to hear. Enjoy the ride with Anna Mears, OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Anna Mears, welcome to the Howie Games. I'm very, very excited to have you on. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. We were just discussing about whether you're a podcast fan and you're starting to get people to tell you to get into them. So yeah. before you get into them, you can be on one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, more and more people are starting to talk to me about podcasts. So, yeah, I need to get into it. And obviously when you invited me on here, I thought I'd... Um, have a bit of a look through some of the stuff that you've done and I found myself going ep after ep after ep, so it was very good. Yeah, we've been lucky to have some some very, very good guests on. We were just talking about we first spent any time together uh, prior to the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm. in Scotland. I came over to um, Adelaide yep. to the velodrome and we had a chat and that was a perfect example. We probably chatted for 45 minutes of what which 10 minutes got to air, so <laughs> it's great to have a chat with you. How are you? How is life? Um, it's bizarre. How old are you? I'm now 34. So who? Yeah, it's it's bizarre being an athlete, isn't it? That you're retired. Retired. But yeah. you, you know, you, you're retired at 33. How's retired life? Because I'm sure life doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. It, it's. I mean, retired life is it's good. It's um, it's almost busier than yeah. when I was an athlete. I guess because I I have time to do all these things that I didn't do when I was an athlete. But also, you know, you pick up work and all sorts of things around um, having in the extra time to do so. Um, but it's certainly been a, a challenging time. It's a big adjustment and I can certainly understand why some people struggle with, with the change. What was the hardest part for you? Uh, well, I, f- I found myself quite confused at the start of it because as, as much as I was ready to um, leave a, a world or a life that was very structured, very routine, very regimented um, and planned out you know, four years in advance, mm. um, I actually found myself overwhelmed by the freedom of not having that structure. Um, and I've, I've, in, in the time since I've retired, which has been just over a year now, um, I've realised that the sporting world, when you're in it, 
feels really, really big. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people there. It runs like clockwork. They support you incredibly. There's a lot of adulation and attention and success. The highs are very, very high. And when you leave that sporting world, you realise that life is actually much bigger. There's far less people in it. They support Their support is much, much lower. Um, the highs are incomparable and you have to almost recalibrate yourself to what is normal and it's really a normal that you don't know. So normal in comparison feels low um, and you start to question your identity and your relevance of who you are in a world without a bike or a sport. And um, and the hardest part is stepping out of the sporting world and, and watching it still continue on without you. Um, so, yeah, it's been... As much as it's been really enjoyable and I was ready for it, um, it certainly caught me off guard in some areas. How do you replace the high of going out there and representing your country and succeeding? How do you replace that, in? It's I, I can't answer that question yeah. yet. I haven't found it. Is that the difficult thing for athletes, to um, replace I, that? I think it, that it's, a, it's a tough lesson to learn not to compare. And um, I, one of the things I said to my dad when I told him that I was going to retire was I didn't want to jump into a new role or a new position and bury myself and be busy and busy and busy, even though I, I, I have been fairly busy with lots of little things. I just wanted to roll with the world for a little bit because I haven't done that, you know, through my teenage years, through my 20s, I haven't done that. Huh. And um, and most people, you know, you know, they go to school, they go to university, they maybe try two or three jobs before they settle into a role for perhaps 20, 30 years before they retire in their 60s in the 70s and mm. that's certainly more condensed and intense for a young athlete who retires in their 30s and most people when they retire in their 60s and 70s they're like great job have a break yeah but when you're an athlete in their 20s or 30s retiring after exhausting yourself in the capacity that we do there's almost this expe- expectation to go well you're still young pick something else and be as successful as you were in your previous role. (laughs) Be the world's best again. Good luck with that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I've really enjoyed being able to sleep in and and be less structured with nutrition and I enjoy going out with friends and and not having to feel like I need to um, jump to bed pretty early for a session the next day. So, you know, I'm starting to learn what normality is and it is an adjustment. To be an Olympian is one thing, but to be a successful Olympian, I guess, is a whole other thing. It must be such a disciplined life. Like I just, I read your book over the last few days, and congratulations, I really enjoyed it. People should check it out. Um, the thing that made me laugh was you wanting to have chocolate <laughs> and not being able to have it, and, and that was your symbol of discipline. Yeah, Crikey, it's a disciplined life at that elite level. Yeah, because sometimes when you have a goal that's quite loft in t- in context of time in front of you, we're talking like a four year plan to try and win a medal once, you know, at the Olympic Games in that cycle, and. Alcohol was something that I give up very, very easily. Obviously, I know the effect it has on the body, and body is my body is my tool. It's my piece of equipment that I need, and it's you know high tuned um, way for me to be successful. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that long term goal, and you mm. can be caught up in the narrow focus. And so, chocolate became my choice of reminder as to why I was being so self-disciplined and why I was being so dedicated and why I couldn't just go out with my friends and why I didn't make family birthdays or anniversaries or Christmases even because I was away competing and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that daily reminder of a piece of chocolate, and believe me, it's in a lot of things. (laughs) It is in a lot of things. Um, You know, I said no to chocolate on a daily basis to remind myself what I was chasing in four years' time. And since I've retired, it's actually been nice because time is that one commodity that we all feel we don't have a lot of. And 
time has been the one thing I've taken from family to be able to do what I do as an athlete. And so my um, New Year's resolution for 2017 was to make every Mia's family birthday. And I missed mums because of Tour Down Under, but I made up for Mother's Day. But the rest of them, I've made everyone's birthday this year. I've never done that since I was a kid, pre-ten, pre-ten years of age. Wow. Um, I made my niece's 16th birthday, which is the first birthday I've actually spent in her life with her because my career spanned 22 years. Hmm. And her birthday always fell in August, which is when Com Games is on or Olympic Games is on or a major competition and I'm travelling in Europe. So it's been nice to do that level of normal things and give time back to the family, which I haven't been there for. And do you spend any time on a bike now? Do you look at a bike and think, cool, or do you think look at a bike and think, no interest? Uh, I look at a bike like, and I... Do you ride to the shops? I do. Um, and you try and set PBs when you're living <laughs> down to get some milk or not? Look, I honestly have become almost this lazy competitor, you know. It's, it's, it gets drawn out of me every now and then, like a board game or something like that with family, and it's intense in the Is it? family. Uh, but, you know, riding, uh, you know, I haven't, um, you know, I don't miss training, but I miss going to training. I miss having somewhere to go every day to be around positive, motivated, driven people. And I miss that environment. I miss mm-hmm. that day-to-day environment. And obviously, we've just come through winter. Mm-hmm. And the Adelaide winter is is pretty cold, um, as you know, with the Melbourne winter. And I just, for the first time in my life, I'm like, there's no reason for me to actually go out and ride. There's nothing for me to achieve at the end of it. And so I'm like, I don't feel like doing it. So I went to the gym and I got on the treadmill. I taught myself to run because I've never run before in my life because I haven't been allowed to <laughs> for potential risk of injury. Right. So I'm, I'm also doing exercise now that I've it's lower intensity that I choose to do. And if I want a hit of intensity, I do a boxing session. Um, but now the weather's turned good. Um, I'm doing some riding and obviously I, I'm doing the Cycling Cares Challenge, which is in memory of my coach, Gary West, that we lost with motor neurone disease just recently. And, and that's got me back on the bike. And believe you me, you lose your fitness very, very quickly, Howie. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. I bet you do. Yeah. And you're talking about your coach. Um, and here it's been publicised enormously through Neil Danaher and what yep. he's been doing with MND. And we've got close friends that um, their mum has got this. And it's it's a horrible thing to watch people go through. That must have been difficult for this is probably your, your second major influence in your life. Yeah. Yeah, it was really tough. You know, coaches play a really significant role. They're just not people who write your program and you do what you're told. These are people who almost fill a position of um, being that parent when you're away from family, being that manager when you're on tour and travel. They're the psychologist that pulls you together when you've had a hard run or you've had a loss on the track or even that person that pats you on the back when you've done a good job. They fill so many roles as a coach and therefore they know you very well um, and therefore they're very influential um, for you in your life. And even into my retirement in the last year, Gary's always been there. Um, And to see him from his very vibrant, active self, you know, he was a Commonwealth Games gold medalist himself in his career, very successful coach, to see him kind of be robbed of his mobility and his voice and just become entrapped in his body as a result of motor neurone disease was was pretty terrible experience. But um, he'd still taught a lot from the lessons he was learning through through his experience of his illness. Um, and so when we, we knew after Rio he was diagnosed with it, we set up Cycling Cares, uh, which is a platform to Neil and Neil Danaher and Ian Davis's Fight M&D campaign. So mm-hmm. anything we do for Cycling Cares funnels into um, Fight M&D. And, um, and Gary wanted that because, uh, you know, you can make people comfortable who suffer from it, but ultimately the the 
desire is to have a cure so no one experiences the illness and it's one of those illnesses that are so unknown um, and the rate of diagnosis is equal to the rate of death and there are no survivors and um, as a result it's not as it's not deemed as heavy a burden on our health system because the number affected doesn't really vary is there a website yeah, so you can go to either cyclingcares.com.au yep. or obviously the Fight M&D yep. um, website and there's lots of ways that people can become involved or really it's not all about fundraising and obviously, you know, there are a lot of great charities and organisations out there that need the support of the community, but awareness is also key. And I think Neil Danaher and Ian Davis have done a really, really good job. And by platforming with, with Cycling Cares for Gary, we were able to remember him through a sport that he was passionate about and loved and obviously myself. And um, and Cycling Cares was really run by Gary, myself and my manager, Francine Pinnock, and um, we keep it going now that he's gone. In some ways, I don't know where to start with you because I was uh, I was looking at over the last few days at um, eleven world titles, two Olympic gold medals, four Olympics Olympics at four of those, Commonwealth Games gold medals, more national titles than I can keep account of. You've had a remarkable, remarkable career. Do you have time now that you've finished to look back on it with pride, Anna? Yeah. Yeah, when, you, when you're in it, you don't really kind of look back in an accumulative sense. There's a lot of accumulation. There's a lot of accumulation. Check out Wikipedia. <laughs> there's, a lot of acc- there's a lot of golds on yeah, there. Yeah, and, you know, even to a point where I don't realise how long I've been in the sport. I'm really proud of that, firstly, how long I was in the sport, but also how successful for a consistent period of time I was. Um, you know, four Commonwealth Games, four, world, um, four Olympic Games, um, and I think there were 13 or 14 world championships over a 15, 16-year career at the elite senior level, and I medalled at every single one of them except the two worlds that I didn't ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very proud of that record. Um, you know, I'm also proud of the connection I have with the Australian public and the people who have followed me over my career, and I've had to, haven't always had that, have not always had that. I've had to be consistent for a long period of time to build that um, but, you know, in retirement and, and hindsight and looking back, there are a lot of things that you pull out of it. You know, one of the things I, I often speak about is the fact that I've realised I've done some tallying of my own. Um, I've won more than anyone in the world in my sporting discipline as a female sprinter, and I'm very, very proud of that. But I've also lost more than anyone else. I've actually lost more races than I've won in my career, but I'm the most successful in the world of what I've done. Um, I've won 11 world titles, but I've lost a further 29 attempts. Mm. So I realise that for me through my career, my success hasn't been around how much I've won. I'm successful because I've gone through some pretty tough challenges, both privately and professionally, um, sat in those moments and learnt and grown from them and asked for help and all that sort of stuff, which can be a pretty hard thing to... uh, to learn to ask for help and uh and made myself better each time do you learn more from winning or from losing oh you learn more from losing do you you learn a far more from losing but it makes you appreciate winning because you can't have it's like a, a coin you can't have one side without the other you can't have success without having appreciated loss and failure and defeat along the way and so um i've learned to respect both sides of that coin right let's go back to the start we've already um a bit of a chat and establish where we are in life. So you grew up in rural Queensland? Yep, country what, Queensland. What were mum and dad all about? So uh, we're a coal mining family. Right. Yeah, so my father was a coal miner for 38 years and my mum pretty much did 
anything and everything around town. She drove the bus for the miners. She'd pick them up in in town, drive them out to the mine, and 12 hours later she'd go out and pick them up and bring them home. Um, She worked at the service station. She was a cleaner, but she also raised four kids. Uh, My dad would do pretty constantly 12-hour night shifts, seven days a week. And uh, to the point now when he's retired, he actually struggles to sleep on a normal uh, day routine. Why, why was he doing nights? Was that you get paid just more at night? Just Right, he liked the nights yeah, more. Yeah, just enjoy. I guess if you're down a coal mine, it doesn't really matter. You don't see the daylight anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was probably smart because he actually did see sunlight for a few hours right. of the day after he had his sleep post shift. But um, so hardworking people. Very hardworking people and really a beautiful people as well. My parents and, and all of my siblings. I'm I'm the baby of four. Um, really successful all in their own individual fields you know I may be in sport I may be looked at as an Olympic champion which puts me above people but we're all equally as successful because we've chased our own passions and that's what makes us individual as people and um, you know the Mears family catch-ups are really cool but um, yeah no we're a coal mining family. And being out there we were just talking about kids now and they don't have as much freedom as they used to. Did you run amok out there? Oh, was yeah. I loved growing free? up in the country. You know, if the sun was up, we were outdoors and our mum's rule was we had to be home by the time the sun set. And, <laughs> you know, you, you you legged it pretty quick if you lost track of time and it started to get pretty pretty dark. <laughs> um, anyway, we did camping. We built cubby houses out in the bush. We'd go riding we, we, barefoot half the time. You know, my feet are very soft now, but I used to be able to just walk across a bitumen and not have my my feet burn. And, mm. you know, you just rock up to your friend's place and, you know, jump on your bush bash and bike and ride around town and go to someone else's house. And it was a very free upbringing. And, um, yeah, I do miss it. I do miss it. So when do you become friends with a bike for the first time? Always been on bikes. From since I can remember, we've always been on bikes. It's... In the country, it's quicker to ride to get to a mate's place than to walk. Mm-hmm. So that was the option there. Um, obviously, being the baby of four, um, my mum wouldn't take four kids to four different sports. So she made the rule that the oldest got to choose the sport, who was oh. the only boy in the family. And all of the younger ones, who were the three girls, had to follow suit. So he dragged us through BMX for about five or six years, eventually took us through karate, which we're all very successful at. And um, we're kind of in two pairs, six years apart. So What do you like at karate? Could you put me in some chokehold now and down or not? <laughs> not now, but I got to brown belt. Right, okay. Yeah, my elder two siblings got to black belt okay. and uh, Carrie and I got to brown. Not to be messed with not them Not to be messed with. Um, so I guess that intense side of competition never really phased us as a result. But um, yeah, eventually my oldest brother and sister, Scott and Tracy, moved out of home and, and followed their own career paths. And it was just Carrie and I who are a year apart in age at home. And we were watching the Com Games on TV in 1994, like all of Australia does. We tune in to support our athletes and that was when we saw track cycling for the first time and Kathy Watt won gold for Australia on the track. With the blonde dyed hair. Yeah, in the pursuit. So we just were intrigued by it and asked mum and dad if we could try track cycling and they had no idea where they were going to find it because we grew up in the country. There was no cycling club where we were. Mm. So they looked up the yellow pages for the closest club and it was in Mackay. 300 kilometres from where we lived. And most parents would probably say, yeah, <laughs> let's just try something a little bit closer to home. But the Tennis maybe, golf. Yeah, you know, anything. Uh, but not my parents. They're like, if you're interested, wow. we'll take you in. And that was 23 years ago. And this is with working night times and driving yep. buses. Yeah. So you used to drive to Mackay. So it was, would you go for the weekend or it's not yep. exactly a day trip? No, no, no. We'd go for the weekend. So the Mackay Cycling Club, which was at Walkerston, um, 
they would hold a track competition Friday nights and a road competition Sunday morning. So depending who had what shift from mum and dad, and often it was mum that would pick us up because of dad's shift work, uh, we would drive 300k after school of a Friday afternoon in time to race Friday night and we'd just get there in time to have fish and chips for dinner, jump into our cycling kit and onto the track. Oh, the fish and chips was before the yeah, competition. Yeah, it stayed down too. And uh, we'd stay there through the weekend, train with the club and race Sunday morning and come home 300k in time for school on Monday morning. My parents did that every weekend for two years straight. So not only did Kerry and I give up a lot as young kids, we were only 11 and 12 at that time, but so did my parents. Mm. And eventually you know, we had really good role models through through them as to what it was to be committed. We saw dedication in, in, in them giving us that opportunity. And eventually it took its toll. Mum and dad took a package from the mine, moved into Rockhampton where I met my first coach and Reggie Tucker and they bought a chicken shop and they were small business owners for seven years working a chicken shop for 365 days a year for seven years to pay for a sport that's obviously expensive with two growing girls. Every time we grew, we needed bigger shoes, bigger mm. bikes, bigger helmets. Every time we rode, we needed more tyres, more tubes, more chains. And uh, that was essentially the shop was to fund the sport. Um, and so it was pretty tough times on everyone and um, it was a pretty successful chicken shop. Did you work in the chicken shop? I did. Did you? I did. What type of role do you get animeers play in the chicken shop? I did everything from did making you? the coleslaw salad to burgers and chips to cleaning the floors and, you know, I've never been opposed to hard work no matter what it is because my parents always showed me hard work gives you a reward at the end of the day. Um, I will <laughs> never earn enough to repay them for everything that they've given me and done for me. But in some ways I got that repayment because I could see the pride in their faces at the big competitions that they were able to come and watch me compete. So many of these chats, and that we've been lucky enough to have, you expect the people we sit down with, and some of them were superstars at age seven and eight, some of them were absolute standouts, but the majority of them said... Even the soccer players, John Aloisi wasn't even the best in his own family. He talks about his brother Ross and Mark Webb was saying he was never really the best. Um, there's Ricky Pontings that are that are absolute standouts. Were you a standout when you first started cycling or no, not? No, no. Kerry was a standout when we first started cycling. So you weren't even the best in your family? No. I pretty much tagged along and collected the competitor ribbons along the way. Um, <laughs> Most improved. <laughs> Clubman Award. Yeah. Um, I actually quit the sport when I was 13, so I did it for two years. I was very good academically. I loved my school. And... Um, I actually quit the sport for a little bit and went back to focusing on my, my homework and my studies and uh, that was when I kept going into Rockhampton and, and at the track when Kerry was racing and old Reg Tucker would always talk to me. He goes, why aren't you on the bike? I'm nah, not interested, Reg. He goes, oh, but, you know, he would just talk to me about the races and he would teach me about tactics and eventually he convinced me to get back on when I was 14. Um, but no, I I wasn't the best. Kerry was, again, the best in the country, therefore best in my family. Um, I wasn't too shabby. I'd pick up a medal here and there, but I was never earmarked. I was never one of those athletes that was really kind of looked at because um, I was short and skinny. You know, I was probably better suited to row when I was younger. I hadn't physically developed yet, whereas Kerry was very, very solid, very strong, very early. So, um, But I didn't like the road. I was bored with the road. I liked the track because it was short, it was fun, it was intense. Uh, and I had to wait till I was about 16, 17 and filled out before I would come become somewhat competitive. And by then I'd picked up a lot of um, knowledge around tactics and reading a race through talking with Reg Tucker. Talking about your sister, and I, the thing I like about these podcasts is you can skip around all over the place, and you, you were in positions where it was 
you were probably in a position where it was you or her on the Australian team mm. for a Com Games or Olympics. I'm not sure. But there, is, there, is there times when you took her spot? Yeah, it's um, Com Games we had more positions available. Uh, so we always had between two and three women we could take to a Com Games. And my first Com Games was in Manchester in 2002 where Kerry was a dual gold medalist. I picked up a bronze in the 500 time trial and um, – sorry – bronze in the sprint, fourth in the 500 time trial. Um, but the Olympic Games is much, much more cutthroat for our sport. And for the two Olympics we contested in the time where Kerry was an athlete, which was Athens in 04 and Beijing in 08, there was only one position for a female sprinter. And you can imagine, can you just imagine, like if we said to our swimming team, you can take one woman mm. for to represent Australia. Mm. That's, you know, it kind of gives you a good scope of, of how hard it was. And Kerry and I woman, your is your sister. And I know Jess Fox has been in, in a similar position to me with that. Um, you know, so we had to compete against each other. And uh, Kerry got pretty severely injured in 2003 but still contested. And I won the world title in 2004, which got me the position uh, qualified for Beige- for Athens. Went there and won gold. Kerry came back after injury. And we were again contesting for Beijing and then I got injured. Um, And it was through me pushing so hard for my rehab and my rehabilitation because I'd been there in Athens but I knew what it felt like to win gold. I knew what it felt like to be at that level and I wanted to be there again. And in doing so, I achieved my goal but I became the one factor that stopped my sister from achieving hers. So how do you keep a relationship on track? Because I know you're very tired as sisters. How do you manage to do that when the one person Mm. you have to beat is your sister? It can't be easy. Yeah, it it is tough. It's very tough. Um, And I don't think a lot of people appreciated at the time how difficult it was. I think it was a little easier for me. Um, Being the younger sibling, didn't have a lot of success when I was younger. You know, it was a bit tougher on Carrie publicly, media, Mm. pressure, all that sort of stuff because she she was, you know, that, that... prodigy athlete that had been around for so long. She was Venus and you were Serena. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like Venus came onto the stage yeah. and started winning and yeah. then, oh, she's got a younger sister. Mm. All of a sudden the younger sister started winning. Yeah, and, and it's a tough gig. It's a really tough gig. Uh, but for me, I was always younger, so I think I always fought and comp- was competitive. And for Kerry, she was always older and she was always very protective. And so I think she found it harder to be intimidating and aggressive towards me than what I did towards her. And uh, Did she ever need to remove herself from you in those periods where you've just achieved your dream and she's just had her dream taken away? Yeah, you know, at the time I don't think I appreciated how difficult it was for Kerry um, because I know what it now feels like to sit back and watch a competition that you want to be in. Um, but Kerry is one of the most beautiful people personality inside and out that you will ever come across. She's one of these people that just has time for days for anyone. She has patience beyond Mm. your, like, she makes me sometimes feel like I'm a pretty (laughs) not so nice person at times. But, um, you know, she's this one, these type of people that you just want all good to happen to because she's just so lovely. Um, And she never made me feel guilty. She never made me feel bad. Um, And she always supported me, even though there were some really tough times. She came to the airport to see me after those games and she would get upset, you know, and I I would feel for her. Um, But she would be the first person to congratulate me as well. Mm. More of Anna in a moment. 
Next week on the Howie Games, our last episode of Series 3 features John Aloisi. This is the story of a boy who was never the most gifted player on his team. In fact, he wasn't even the best player in his own family. But John, through hard work, hard work and even more hard work, became a man at the very centre of one of Australia's greatest ever sporting moments. When you're hitting the ball, when you hit it like that, it's sort of like golf. You've got your head over the ball because if your head's up, then you can go over the bar. And so your head's over the ball. And as I've, I've hit it, I've felt a good connection. Um, and then I look up and I can just see the ball sort of going in. And then I see the net start to move a little bit. And, and I remember this well that I, I can't hear anything. Is it, Has it gone in? Because normally there should be a cheer, but it was probably a half a second before... You know, everyone realised it had gone in. That, uh, and so if you see the way I've started running off, my my face is a little bit shocked, and and it's like, is it in? Is it? Uh, and then I hear the cheer, and I see the net really move, and um, and that's when I I go nuts. Back to Anna. You talked about Athens, and I had the pleasure of earlier on the year having Phil Liggett on this podcast, and he did yeah. say to tell you that he was happy to come around and do work in your garden. <laughs> Whenever you need it. Yes. Um, One of my, for two reasons, one of my uh, favourite sporting memories with Athens when you won your gold medal because I had the afternoon off and Phil said, Howie, there's a spare spot next to me in the commentary box. So I I was actually listening to him live. I could hear his voice and watching you win a gold medal, which was, I I still get tingles now thinking about it, It was that wonderful velodrome that had this sort of open sides. sides. and It was warm and there was a big crowd. And what, what is it like? In the final stages, you're about to jump on your bike to try and achieve your life's dream. What's going through your mind? This is in the time. Uh, this is in the 500 time trial. This stage. Yeah. So, so I was only 20 in Athens. This was my first Olympic Games. I'd gone in as world champion because I'd won it that year. This would be the first time, as a result of being world number one, I had to start last and watch every woman in the world post a time before me. And I'd never been in that position before. I don't actually remember a lot of that day, or that race. I remember um, coming up from warming. Up, I warmed up away from the velodrome and I walked up the stairs to the centre of the pits and they were putting my numbers on and I was starting to stress and I was really panicked and I said to my coach, Martin Barras at the time, I said, oh, I forgot my gloves, they're still downstairs. So he's run down, he's legged it, there's not much time before the start. Got my gloves and he's come back up and he goes, here you go, Ms. Anna, what else? Is there everything all good? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I forgot my glasses. And he's turned around, and he's run downstairs to get my glasses. <laughs> he come back up empty-handed but puffing. He goes, Ms. Anna... You don't need glasses. You got a visor on your helmet. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, okay. You know, so I, I remember being very, very nervous. Um, the next thing I remember is I was walking up to the track and literally feeling like my legs were made of concrete. Of they, concrete. Of concrete. They were so heavy. I felt like I wanted to use both my hands to pick one leg up at a time to physically move it. Is this due to nerves? Nerves, adrenaline, the atmosphere, the environment. I'd never been in it before. I'd done a lot of mental psychology and visualisation to prepare what it might be like. But sometimes you just can't recreate that Olympic environment. And so then I remember sitting there waiting for my turn to go on the track and the Chinese rider was before me. I just seen red and gold go past at the halfway point. I just kept looking at Marv. I didn't look anywhere else. I just looked at Marv trying to find like a central focus point. And for two months, we did this same preparation drill going into any time I did a standing start. And Martin believed that it would take 34.1 to win the Olympic Games and by that point my personal best was 34.3 
And after the Chinese rider had finished, she'd obviously gone through the fastest at that point. Um, and he turned to me and he said, last ride at the Olympics, 34-1 to beat. She actually rode 34-1. So instantly I kind of felt calm because it was something that we had done a lot of preparation for and that almost was the normality I needed to kind of snap me back into, I've got this, I've done the preparation. Um, the next thing I remember is get being on the bike and the 10-second buzzer going, you know, 10 seconds from the biggest moment of my career in my life and and all of a sudden this fly starts buzzing around and then it just lands on my hand. And um, I don't like to move my hands once they're set in on the bars. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm blowing at my hand and I'm flicking my elbow and I'm trying to get this fly off my hand. Meanwhile, three, two, one, the countdown goes and before I know it, first pedal stroke out the gate. Can't tell you anything else that happened. I, I remember the halfway point because the pitch of the crowd changed. Um, and I knew I was either close to or, or up. And then I, I remember crossing the finish line, looking straight up to the scoreboard, which was in the centre of the velodrome, desperate to see where I'd placed. And, uh, yeah, I rode world and Olympic record to take the gold. 33.952, first woman to ride sub-34 for the 500 time trial. It was a two-lap race. 500 metres, I took six laps in victory. <laughs> My coach couldn't get me off the track. I'm just like, this is awesome. And he put his hand out to catch me. He's like, oh, come on, Miss Anna, you got to come in soon. I'm like, no, 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 give me one more lap. <laughs> and is it everything it is cracked up to be since you were doing those 300-kilometre journeys with your parents, dreaming, I guess, to be an Olympian or Olympic gold medalist? Is it everything you hope it's going to be? Um, I'll, I'll honestly answer it. You can't... Up until that point, I couldn't think of anything that was anywhere comparable to what it actually was in real life. To live a dream, to actually have it unfold in reality, is it almost happens in slow motion time because it just doesn't mm. seem real. And, uh, yeah, I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I, did, I was screaming. I was crying. I couldn't breathe in. I couldn't breathe out. I was physically frozen but strapped to a bike that was doing 60K an hour and... Yeah, it was an incredible time. 20 years of age, an Olympic champion. And the majority of us think at that point that the one thing that really struck me in your book of all the amazing stories, you expect an Olympic gold medalist, you come home, you're fated, there's the parade. Even someone that works in sport, I think Golden Holden's sponsors, big bank accounts. If you're Ian Thorpe or Grant Hackett, that comes. Um, but it struck me when you came home that that wasn't necessarily the case financially. It blew me away what happened to you financially. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, a lot of people think if you win Olympic gold, that's it, that's it. you're done, you're set for life, you're rich. Uh, it's certainly not the case. And I was working two jobs leading into Athens um, to try and make ends meet. And if I couldn't get my shifts because I had to work around training and I fell short on cash, I'd lean on mum and dad. Uh, but, you know, at that time, uh, cycling had had issues with drugs and obviously one of the sports that has had a drug history and, you know, a lot of corporates and a lot of Australians uh, didn't want to touch me because I was associated with a sport that wasn't um, seen as clean. And so I couldn't get any financial sponsors. So I went back to work. I went back to... I was a bank teller. Yep. And so I worked... Uh, on my, I had two days off and I worked as a temp relief teller around Adelaide and um, Kerry got me a second job uh, at the hockey and soccer stadiums in the canteen. Obviously, we'd been used to working in mum and dad's shop. So in the canteen? In the canteen. So, yeah, people would come and um, order their burgers and chips at halftime and we would be serving them. And From an Olympic gold medalist? Yep. Had to. How does that 
make you feel? Because I, I, I know that there's no. That's not why you get into the sport. No. But I would imagine there'd be certain expectations when you are the best in the world that you're not serving hot dogs at the hockey centre. Yeah. Well, Athens was a very successful campaign for Australia. We had some twenty gold was, medalists yeah. come from Athens, and six gold were won by cyclists. So, uh, I was actually one of many. And so when I came from a sport that was uh, somewhat tainted, um, there was no trust and I was new to the scene really for a lot of corporates and uh, they just didn't want to go there. So um, it can be pretty tough. It can be a pretty tough gig, you know, Um, but like you said, you don't do it for the money. Um, And my passion was for in striving to achieve and my passion was representing Australia and and I got a taste for it very young. Um, And I realised that once every four years to get a chance to do that is a pretty rare thing. Mm. So, you know, my time came and I had to earn the respect and trust of not just corporates to get sponsors, but also Australia. And I, and I like to say to people, you know, I, I actually like that I'm a, from a sport where they're catching ch- drug cheats. Um, I'd rather be from a sport where you catch them than not because drugs is not an issue for cycling. Drugs is an issue for sport. Mm. And uh, at the start, you know, I was very young and inexperienced with media and questions. And I didn't want, if an athlete went positive in cycling, I didn't want them to come to me because I didn't want to be associated with it. It wasn't my issue. Um, But as I got older and a little bit more confident and understood, people were looking for someone that would really stand there and say, no, it's wrong. And no, I'm clean and I'm doing it the hard way. And um, and so I, I never really opposed any questions from anyone on the topic. You became known, you were an Olympic gold medalist, but you became known as the girl that had that crash. The girl that broke her neck. Um, yeah, and looking at it, um, it's frightening to watch. Um, you better tell us about that because it's a big part of your story. Yeah, you became mm. as the girl that broke her neck. Yeah, when I came out of Athens, no one really knew me. I was 20, I was young, I was new, I was in a very successful team. They knew you at the hockey centre? Yeah, they knew me at the hockey centre. <laughs> Serving the hot dogs. <laughs> I guess on that topic too, you've got to understand, Australians love their sport. Yeah. You know, sport is so entrenched in our culture and our history, it's actually a competitive market within itself. Mm. And it's, we're not just talking about Olympic sports, we're talking about all these sports who aren't even Olympic sports. Cricket, soccer, football, netball, the list is endless. Um, and so we are really flooded in our country with great sport people uh, and it can be very hard to pick up um, sponsorship and support as a result of that. But um, I got my first sponsor in 2007. It started with uh, NAB, my bank that I was working with. They first sponsored me and paid me my wage so I didn't actually have to work. And then I picked up Toshiba and BHP Billiton. And so I started to, to get a bit of a role, which was fantastic. I was called, starting to go to all the competitions to qualify for Beijing, which there were five. And I was in Los Angeles at a World Cup, which was the third of five qualification events. And I made the Kieran final, which was the last event on the calendar. And my coach, Martin Barras, came to me and he said, look, we're seven months from the Olympics. The last thing we need are any injuries or accidents. So um, in a Kieran, in an event that's known for its uh, roughness and its spectacular crashes and, and all that sort of stuff, he said, if it gets tight, go to the back, bide your time, give yourself plenty of room and just make one late pass around the outside. And it's exactly what happened. I got passed by girls on the left. I got passed by girls on the right, started copping a few elbows and stuff. And I'm like, no, no. I put the brakes on, gave myself a good bike length or two, decided with 250 metres to go, which is one lap left on the track, to to make my move. And at the same time, when I accelerated forward, it was movement in the bunch in front of me and I clipped a wheel. 
and uh, just in an in accident that happens at every competition. And uh, I went down and I the first thought that came to mind was the 14-hour flight home in economy is just really going to suck <laughs> because it's tight as it is. But when you take a fall and you're swollen and you're sore and you've got, you know, the track burn, it's pretty nasty. Um, never did I think I was going to be in as much pain and, and blacked out like I was. And um, the result of that would, I heavily bruised my right hip. I dislocated my right shoulder. I tore a number of ligaments and tendons. I had skin abrasion or, or burn, which is the result of skin sliding against wood at 65 k an hour. On your face. The photos of those yeah. burns on your face. Are, oh, From gee. two millimetres under my eye to my right ankle. So all those superficial wounds were there, but um, I also broke my neck. I fractured my C2 vertebra, which is the second one down from the skull. And my superficial injuries were obviously on the right side because that's the point that or side that made impact with the track. But I broke my neck on the left. So it wasn't actually the impact of hitting the track with my head that caused my neck to break. It was the fourth force with which it bounced off the track, which caused it to compress and break on the opposite on the side. Um, and I was very fortunate because C2 is where all your lung attachments go to. And I was two mil from a clean break. So two millimetres from being a quadriplegic requiring a respirator for the rest of my life to breathe. Um, and that piece of information really scarred me and sent me on quite a negative spiral mentally because I started thinking in the context of what if. You know, what if that two millimetres had had not have been there? What if best case scenario I was paralysed from the chin down or worst case dead, which were the only two options that were, would come after that two millimetres was gone? And um, my coach at the time, Marv, a fantastic coach, he said to me, Mizana, you're looking at it wrong and you've only got one word to change. He said, you've got to look at what is. You know, when, when you look in the context of what if, you're thinking about what we fear could possibly have happened or may happen in the future. What if I get an opportunity to make the team and I stuff it up? What if I get to present to the board and I stuff it up or, or all this sort of stuff? It hasn't happened yet. But we start to feel, think and make decisions around the things that we fear. So when he made me aware of, of what I was doing, I started to uh, consciously make a change in how I was thinking and I started to think in the context of what is and what was was real, tangible, something you could work with. Um, the two millimetres saved my life and every day I was getting better and stronger and healthier and happier and, and more capable of being back to where I was. And out of that experience, I learned that if it wasn't for that fall, I don't think I would have been the athlete that I ultimately became because I learnt about my capabilities. I learnt about my strengths and weaknesses. That was where I learnt how to ask for help. I had to swallow my pride and learn that being vulnerable and incapable at times didn't mean that I was weak. It meant that I needed to ask to help, have someone's help to make me better, to make me stronger. Um, and so I, I had to swallow a lot of pride and it taught me so much. And I was very different as an athlete in the, in the eight years following that took me through to London and to Rio. Again, the photos in your book, the photo that really struck me was you trying to get back on the rollers on a bike with some, I don't know, it looked like a, like a clothesline set up, yeah. <laughs> rigged up. Yep. You're a million miles away from being a competitive cyclist at that point. I got back on the bike 10 days after I fell. 10 days. 10 days. And it's amazing when you break your neck, you don't realise how heavy your head is. Our heads are very, very heavy. So I had no capacity to hold the weight of my head if I leant on the handlebars of a bike. So the coaching staff, the mechanic staff, the psychological staff, the medical staff all had to get together together 
to work out how I was going to get back on a bike to pedal. And sometimes innovation isn't about thinking of something that hasn't been created Mm. yet. Innovation is just using cleverly something that's already there. And so they actually just got a portable self-adjustable clothes rack, um, put it underneath my bike frame and created a comfortable bar for me to rest on so I could sit perpendicular on my um, home trainer at home and just pedal. And how long did you pedal for the first time? One minute. One minute? One minute. And why did you stop after a minute? Got too dizzy. Had to be helped off the bike. Um, But I'd done 10 days of laying flat. So having been a person that's very driven, very active, being able to do something for a minute felt like Christmas. Um, And so I was inspired or intrigued or desperate just to get back on and do it again. And I did that afternoon. I pedaled for five minutes before I got dizzy and I needed help off again. Same day? Same day. How far is this from the Beijing Olympics? This would be now six and a half months. Right. And uh, that to me said I'd improved four minutes in a day. So I always try to look at things in a, in a really positive way as a result of the lesson I learned from my coach. And uh, I thought if I can do four minutes improvement in a day, what can I do in a week? And I was riding half an hour without any support in a week, which meant I could get in the pool. And then I did that comp- compiled with the bike. And that meant then I could get in the gym. And the gym's really important. And most people probably say, why the gym? You're a cyclist. But um, I guess it's probably worth describing myself as like the Usain Bolt version of cycling. I ride the 100, 200, Mm -hmm. 500 metres. So my fitness isn't determined by how many kilometres I can ride like Cadell Evans. Um, It's determined by my strength. And up until that point, a month later, when I got back in the gym, I'd lost six kilos, Um, which most women would be like, that's that's all right. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, that was my engine wasting away. So I had to get back into the gym to continue to use the muscles to retain the strength required to be a, a fast sprinter. Um, and so my coaches would just pick me up and carry me from apparatus to apparatus. And over the time, we trained myself from my toes up. And by the time my hip healed, I could do core. By the time my core was strong, I could take my um, sling off and I could do upper body. And by the time my neck brace came off 10 weeks after I fell, was actually physically stronger than before my fall. I just didn't, couldn't turn my head or hold the weight of my head. How do you go when it's full on back on the track and you've got people cycling around you? I guess you had to put yourself in that position. Yeah. Like a, like a Mark Webber talks about crashing and getting back in the car and how you have to get on with it. What was it like for you? It was quite daunting and um, it's kind of like when people burn their hand on a pot you're going to go and check it a couple of times before you grab it again. You'll learn your lesson. And I learned my lesson subconsciously and I didn't realise it um, to the point where when I went back to the velodrome, I physically froze. I couldn't walk into the velodrome. Um, and it would take me a few attempts over a number of days just to get into the pit. So you couldn't walk in there because of fear just, of what could just happen? Phys- my physical response to the environment where I got injured was just to freeze. Gee. So I was I was battling myself. I was in my mind trying to convince my body to relax so I could actually move it forward. Um, same thing with the bike. You know, I, I just my coach would just let me see the bike first time. Then next time I would see it and touch it. Next time I would see it and sit on it. Um, and then so the process went forward. And I had to almost reprogram myself like a computer that I could actually trust not just myself but that environment again. And um, once I got back on the bike, it was fine until I got to competition. I was very, very nervous. I was shaking uncontrollably. The first race back was a Kieran. And uh, my coach said to me, because he could feel me shaking, like you could actually see it, I was uncom- uncontrollable. He said, just roll through. Just roll through. Don't compete. Just roll through. And um, I survived. 
convince myself again that you know my mind was in control, I could trust it, and eventually the body relaxed and let me take control again. Did you watch the accident back? I did, yeah, because I've got no memory of it. Um, so all I really – bits and pieces come back to me every now and then. I started to write, which is where the book came from. Writing actually helped me therapeutically mentally and emotionally because I had to slow down all the thoughts and feelings that I was um, experiencing to actually articulate it to word and paper. And, uh, yeah, I watched it and I was – honestly, I was disappointed. I was uh, For the injuries I got, <laughs> I wanted some spectacular broken bike and wheels flying through the air. This was just a simple clip of the wheel and, and hit the deck. And, um, You're a lunatic. <laughs> but it wasn't I, – I watched it in slow motion and when I saw it in slow motion, I saw the impact – of the body and realised I was pretty lucky. There's a couple of things that you mentioned that I would like to ask you about. One that wasn't in my head at all. You, you mentioned the fact that, um, I don't really even know how to ask this, you mentioned that most girls would love to lose six kilos. Yeah. A lot of kids listen to this. Um, what's your thoughts on girls and women and body image? Like you had as an athlete, an amazingly powerful, epic, awesome body. Yeah. Um, it's not a catwalk modi- model no, body. No, you won't see me in bikini model uh, magazines and stuff like that. I don't have a bikini body or anything like that. And there's not much to hide, you know, when you're in a one millimetre thick no. piece of lycra. <laughs> and it's, it's a wonderful, powerful, strong... Yeah, and I like that. And actually, in, in since I've retired... I've lost a lot of that and I'm much softer and it's nice because I fit clothes but I don't I'm not used to how I feel at the moment and um but no you know body image is an interesting one because we we do naturally as a result of what we see and what we're attuned to through media and magazines and social media and all that sort of stuff as to what's beautiful or as to what's acceptable for a female body and uh and so we are almost preordained to uh, judge ourselves pretty harshly and mm. I'm one of those people that I'm, I'm my own worst critic I don't need anyone to say anything to me I will find the way to <laughs> critique it and um, even when you've got one of the best athletic bodies on the planet which yeah. you did have yeah 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 and you know I found beauty in what what I had to um, show in the tool and the body that I used um, and I'm, I'm proud of it because I liked being strong I liked having curves and size. I liked fe- feeling physically capable. Um, and, you know, I, I had to accept me. And, you know, I did cop some interesting comments and things that happened along my career way where you know, people would make a point of something or, you know, um, bring attention to a, a particular area of my body. And you want to talk specifics here or not? Oh, just like backsides, how big my butt was. But at the end of the day, it was it was my engine, you know. And, um, yeah, I think I think we all need to appreciate in some way and the thing I love about sport is there's no typical or stereotyped body for sport. You can be tall and skinny, you can be short mm. and stumpy, you can be 200 kilos or like a weightlifter, you can be a little like gymnast, you can be a seven-foot basketballer and you are welcomed in the sporting environment because it's the uniqueness of the body that creates the result through sport. And so that's that's how I found my comfortability with it. So. Oh, it's a really personal question, but if, if, like, if we're looking at an ice skater, like, I remember that big boss Koss bloke from Scandinavia in the Winter Olympics, and he had a massive bum on him. It was like, how good's this? This is powering him along the track, which is 
essentially what you needed to compete. If people wrote that about you, could you just shake it off? Or The, the first time I felt um, publicly critiqued was actually not until London when the hype around Victoria Pendleton and I was at its peak and obviously there was this whole Aussie versus Britain, ashes on wheels, villain versus not and, uh, you know, the British really hammered me Um, and one of the headlines that just really threw me was broomstick versus lipstick. You know, I was the not so pretty, ugly Aussie coming to try and take the gold from glamorous Queen Victoria. And, uh, you know, that that really shook me because it was the first time I felt uh, judged in a capacity that wasn't in any relation to what I did as a profession. Um, and so that was that actually triggered me. I went off media. Six weeks before the Olympic Games, I did no social media, no media, and frustrated a lot of people in the media world because obviously mm. we were a draw card, Victoria Pendleton and I for London, but I couldn't risk it. I couldn't risk something so little creating an emotional issue that would derail all the work and preparation that myself and my team and my family had done for so long. And I didn't want to buy into it, so I just shut it out. You mentioned Victoria Pendleton. There's there's things that are linked with your career. One's the crash, the other. We love a rivalry in sport. That's yeah. that what drives sport. And at the time, it was just brilliant for your sport, I think, that there was these two women from opposite sides of the world that yeah. wanted the same thing. And there, there'd been animosity between one side, both sides, I don't know. There was a crash early on. Yeah, in it was 2006, uh, Victoria Pendleton and I collided in a, in a Kieran and I was disqualified for it and um, I went to Victoria Pendleton afterwards. She, she didn't crash, it was, she, she held it up and, and I apologised to her and I explained to her what I was intending to do and why it went wrong and all that sort of stuff and, and she didn't want a bar of the apology and, and from there it was very icy. We didn't speak for almost four years. Um, so really the only way that we started to communicate was what we read in the media and what we read in the media we didn't even know if it was quoted or misquoted mm. or hyped or unhyped and, and because by that time we started to, to step away from the main field and become those two people that went tit for tat. You know, it was one minute it was Vicky, the next minute it was me. And so it was really, really intense. And that was where it all started to, to build. And as obviously going into the London Olympic Games, you had this incredibly beautiful, perfect concoction of an Aussie versus a Brit, a little bit of rivalry in there. And then it just, it blew out, it blew up. And uh, it was tough. I can't begin to express to you how difficult it was how much pressure and an expectation and anxiety it put on me and my team um, but in hindsight it was one of the best experiences of my career I wouldn't change a thing because I was one part one half of a rivalry that made women's sprinting at the Olympics a highlighted or spotlighted event I'm so proud of that. It's never been like that before. This was an event that Prince Harry came to. This was an event that Paul McCartney was in the stands for. Everyone wanted to see Mears versus Pendleton. So as much as perhaps I think both of us really struggled with the hype and the rivalry at the time, we can really look back and be proud of the fact that it was our competitive, aggressive spirit between the two of us of trying to be the best trying to battle for one gold medal between two people that really flicked some cord with so many people. It's a sporting rivalry. That's yeah. why we watch sport. Have you seen, um, and we'll speak about Beijing in a moment, have you seen, I was watching it on YouTube yesterday, after you beat her in London, which we'll get to, in the Olympic Channel, interview her. 
I don't know if you've seen it, but she's won a silver medal at her home Olympics where she was obviously hoping to win gold and that was it for her. She was done. The way she spoke about the pressure that was on her and she was so relieved mm. that it was finished. Mm. She's like, I, I don't care that mm. I got a silver medal. I'm just so happy this is done. That yeah. made me think, my God, the pressure yeah. those two girls must have been under. It was intense and I think time has helped me understand what she must have experienced because we only ever see it she was from broken. Our side. She was broken in yeah. this interview. She's a broken woman. We we actually had the chance to sit down in Rio. She asked me to sit down because she works for BBC Five Radio now, and um, if I would have an interview with her, and I said, of course. We've crossed paths numerous times, and it was the first time we actually got to talk to each other about that rivalry and about that competition. And it was fantastic because we, we really just laid all the cards on the table. Did you say this? Was this quote in the media right? Because this is what reaction it got from me and this is why this happened at that competition. And and we started to piece things together and it was fascinating because I think both of us for the first time got to see the same story and same experience from a completely different perspective. I can now appreciate the intensity and pressure she was under at a home games, defending Olympic champion in the sprint. She was the Kathy Freeman. Yeah. But she did win gold, let's not forget. She won no. the gold in the Kirin. Yep. So I was world champion the Kirin that year and she won gold in the Olympics. She was world champion the sprint that year and I won the gold at the Olympics. So we kind of went for each other's event in the end. Mm. Uh, but, you know, both of us, you know, it was such a relief, you know, particularly for us because that gold medal was the only gold medal won on the track. It was only one of seven gold at those Olympic Games for the country. Um, and so there's so much significance that goes beyond that rivalry as well. Before we go back to Anna, part three of our sporting documentary podcast series called The Moment has recently been released. The first episode told the story of the history of the Socceroos. Ep 2 follows the life of pro golfer Jared Lyle, who has fought leukaemia three times and our newest ep tells the emotional story of Mick Fanning, a man who has overcome tragedy to reach the top of his sport. Mick Fanning is known for many things. He's one of the best surfers on the planet. He's a three-time world champion. You know, you can have one chance and miss it and, and never get back there. He's a man that fought a shark and lived to tell the tale. You know, when I first started getting back in after the incident, I, you know, I'd just hear a little splash and I'd freak out. But before any of that, Mick had to deal with tragedy. I had to wake my mum and uh, explain to her what, what happened and... Uh, Yes, hardest step in life. On November 6, 2007, Mick Fanning awoke in Brazil. I was super, super nervous. His lifelong dream within touching distance. A world title was always going to be the way to, to go, all right, I've dealt with it all, you know, and now I've risen above it all. This is the story of one title. The light on his face, you know, when that happened, he kind of felt like, you know, Sean was there. One moment. I, um, I felt there was definitely someone with me at that time. I'd probably never jump into a, a crowd of Brazilians like that ever again because it could, could get dangerous. <laughs> there you go, bro. I've done it. I'm doing it for you. The Moment, Mick Fanning. Available Monday, March 19 at podcastone.com.au or download the app. The Moment series will pop up in your Howie Games feed or simply search The Moment on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Okie dokie. Back to Anna. You managed to get to Beijing after you got the 
clothes machine out of your way and you're yeah. riding your bike <laughs> and you made the Olympic final and Victoria beat you. Yep. And I guess for a couple of years around that time, she had the wood on you. She she hmm. was she was the one beating you. How did you turn it around in the lead up to London? How, how do you go about beating a rival that is consistently beating you prior to that? Well, she hasn't just consistently beaten me at this well, stage. She She's everyone. consistently beaten everyone. She'd yeah. been undefeated internationally for six years. So this is the calibre of the woman we were talking about. She was modern-day best sprinter the world had ever seen, um, hands down. And so, you know, we realised that we were doing something wrong because the outcome was never changing. And so it was my team that I worked with, obviously headed by Gary West, and we had incredible staff numbers. And and this is the other thing that many people don't realise. To make one athlete successful or to make one athlete have an opportunity at the Commonwealth Games, even if you're an individual... There's an enormous team of people that go into making it happen um, because one person can't do it on their own. And so it was this team that came together to help me learn about change and the importance of change because change is hard for everyone in Mm. any context. It takes you from what you know and are comfortable with to what you don't know and what you're uncomfortable with. And so we realised I had to change what I was doing, my strategy, my preparation, my application, my tactics, my skill act, all that sort of stuff because my outcome had not changed in six years. I was, I was essentially battling for silver and bronze. And so through that process, we realised we had to do some analysis on Victoria Pendleton to better understand the information of what type of sprinter she was so that we could then work out what skills I needed to acquire to counteract her strengths and weaknesses. And through that analysis, we realised, you know, once we broke it down to statistical data, she was the sprinter, the type of sprinter, and you could see it and you knew it. She always liked her opponent in front of her. And You, you need to explain... The sprint now for okay, those that because sure. it's my favourite Olympic event. Yep. Because it's cat and mouse. It's slow, slow, slow. Then it's fast. So yeah. explain the race you're talking about that yeah. you're trying to beat her in. Now, a lot of people ask me why do they call it the sprint when you go so slow. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jeez, it's a good event to watch. Yeah, it it's really great. is. It really is. Uh, so the individual sprint, why it's difficult? You start with a qualification. It seeds riders fastest to slowest. You want to be fastest because you technically get the easier run through the rounds. Fastest is always seated against the slowest qualifier, second slowest, second fastest, third slowest, third fastest. So then it's a seated. Seated. Then you get paired up. The first two rounds are sudden death. You have to beat your opponent to make it through to the quarterfinals. Once you get to the quarterfinals, it's a best of three matchup. So you don't only have to beat your opponent once, you have to beat them twice. And this is where tactics, skills, decision-making becomes very, very important because if you do the same thing every time, you become predictable. And predictability means you're ultimately defeatable. So you have to be able to make decisions on the fly without hesitation. You have to trust your instincts and and your instincts come from the preparation work you do before you get to the competition track. Very tactical. Very tactical. You have to know what their opponent's strengths and weaknesses are so that you try try and counteract them. For instance, for me, I have a big acceleration, a very good from low speed bottom of the track. So to counteract that, a lot of people try to ride high to use the, the hill to run down to get the speed to counteract my jump. Um, and so in analysing Victoria Pendleton, uh, we realize in the sprint, obviously, you lead one, then you've got to follow. And then if you go to a third match, it's a redraw as to who's, who rides what position. With Victoria Pendleton, she was so good at controlling her opponents to allow her to be in the back position to have them in front of her that majority of the time that's where she rode and that's where she won. 
But because she was so good at it, on the few occasions she had to lead races, mm-hmm. she got lost on the track. She was easily to be moved around. She couldn't see her opponents behind her. She never practiced those skills enough to be as good as what she was at the back. Now, let's remember this is the best woman in the world. So we're really nitpicking, nitpicking here. Yeah, We're yeah. nitpicking. Yep. Um, so we felt like we felt not a chink in the armour, a scratch. That's how good she was. We hmm. found a scratch. And we tested it out. Um, we had to work out how to get her from her strongest position into the front where she rarely was. We tested that out a year and a half before the Olympic Games in London at a World Championships in Holland, and we were successful. It was the first time Victoria Pendleton had not won a world title in some years. I won it. And so we realised this was how we could beat this woman. We didn't use that skill again for a year and a half internationally or domestically until we met her in the final in London. You kept in your back pocket? Back pocket. That was trump card. We wanted her, her coaching staff, her sports science staff to work off a plan of what they were seeing me do. So at training, I would always practice that skill with my teammates. And at competition, we would practice plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, K in case I couldn't pull off plan A. But plan A, the track stand, was always the game we were going to play. Before, so, so before that, before we get to the final, yeah, are you going to move on to the final there? Yeah. Okay, before that, you race in the Kirin. Yes. You're the world champion. Yes. And I, don't, I say this with the greatest possible respect because I remember watching that and you're a superstar, but you stuffed it, Missy. I bombed it. You stuffed it. I did, I know. And it's it's a it's a black mark that I actually carry very heavily and even just thinking about it and talking to you about it, I feel very I'm feeling flustered now, you know, really? because I know I can I almost put myself back into the position of being in that in that velodrome when I lost. Well it was just so what's the best way of saying Out of it? Character? it was so unlike you. <laughs> yeah. It was I remember watching and thinking, yeah. right. Even the best can stuff up. Yeah. And I did. I stuffed up big. I went to the front way too early. I'd chosen a gear for a totally different tactic. Um and I blew up. I didn't have the legs to carry that gear for as long as I was on the front. And that makes you emotional now. Yeah. And I went from first to fifth. And and that was tough because Victoria won and the press were and all the headline news and everything that went out in London that day was Victoria Pendleton gold, Mears fifth. Didn't mention who got second, third and fourth. Mm. It was just the comparison between the failure that I was and the success that she was. And and I felt utterly, I don't know what the word is to describe how I felt. I was uh, almost mortified. I felt extremely sorry for all the people who had put in so much work to me that I felt like I had failed them, I had let them down. Um, And I never blame anyone. If I lose, I lose because of the decision or the choice that I make because I know i got the best team in the world. I know that i got people who have sacrificed and been proactive in every capacity. I couldn't ask for more. So I knew that it was my, my, my weight to bear and I found it very, very difficult. But I had to turn it around because the sprint was only a few days away. So how do you do that? You cry a lot. You, Which is a recurring theme in your yeah. book. There's a lot of tears in your book. Well, you know, you can't be as invested in something mm. and not be emotionally responsive when it either goes well or not so well. And uh, I'm a very emotionally expressive and responsive person because um, I feel I feel, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I feel. I feel pain. I feel disappointment. I feel happiness. And I. That's why felt- you're a loved athlete, though, as well, because people love to see the athletes show emotion because then 
it means so much to us at home that we want you to win. I reckon when we see the tears or the excitement, then we realise it means so much to you as well. And I think, too, it makes you um, human. Yeah. People can identify. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was tough. I made myself sit in the ice bath. I made myself do recovery. I made myself eat the right foods because I knew I had to look after the body. Um, but I needed the emotional outlet. And um, my coach, Gary West, was fantastic. Bertie May, my soigneur, one of my best friends. My family were lovely. First thing I did when I left the velodrome was send an apologetic um, message to all of my sponsors, to every member of my family, because I honestly oh. felt like I was this, I, I'd really, really let them down. I felt I, I wore it very heavy. So if I came to you there, if I passed you in the street at that moment, you've just leaving I wouldn't the have velodrome. Looked at you. I had my eyes down. I I couldn't I couldn't look anyone. So if I if I managed to catch your eye and said, "Hey, how are you going to go in the sprint?" Would have bawled my eyes out. Right. Wouldn't have been able to talk. Right. Um, Gee. very tough. But I sat with my coach at the food court in the village <laughs> after the ice bath and after the recovery and all that sort of stuff. And he was just looking at me, and I couldn't look at him because, you know, coaches invest as much, if not more, as an athlete. You know, they're away from their own families, all that sort of stuff. And he knew that if he was going to talk to me, I'd cry. So he didn't talk to me. He just took his napkin, pulled out a pen, and he wrote something on it, and he slid it across the table in the, in the food court. And I read it, and he just the, the simple question was, what are you going to do, Mirzi? And I took his pen, and I wrote back, I'll, I'm going to do what I know, and I'm going to keep fighting. And I slid it back. He read it, folded it up, put it in his pocket. He goes, right, met me for a meeting. We curbed the Kieran. We went back to our sprint plan and he said to me, he goes, tomorrow when you walk in that velodrome, everyone will look at you. Every coach, every athlete, every person, they'll be wanting to know what state you're in because you've, you've had a big loss. He said, I want you to put your best lipstick on. I want you to have your hair in the best possible way. Walk in with the biggest smile on your face like you've never been there before and you're ready to race. He said, even if you don't feel like it, you bluff your way through. And he was right. Every coach, every athlete were looking to see what response I was in physically and emotionally to that loss. And, um, and I smiled and I chatted to them and I shook all their hands and I walked to my pit. I took a deep breath and then I just got on with the job. The job got you to the Olympic final. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Victoria won a gold medal. She was one of the biggest stars in the game. It's the big rivalry. When you're there locked on on the track with a minute to go. What are you trying to think about? As little as possible. <laughs> there is a lot that goes through one's mind in the short space of time when you're ready to go up there. And so I did a lot of prep with my coach. In that space, I can't be buried by words. I can't be spoken to in, in great detail. You know, and we'd done a lot of um, practice with this, very short very concise pieces of information. And that's how we broke down the race plan. And so I was just repeating to myself exactly what I needed to do. Um, I never tell myself, don't do this. Because when you say, for instance, if I said to you, don't think of pink elephants, what do you think of? Pink elephants. So if I say, don't stuff it up, generally I'm going to stuff it up. <laughs> so I actually tell myself what I need to do. I need to stay calm. I need to take deep breaths. I need to be prepared for the, what I'm expecting from Victoria Pendleton. I need to know that I need pressure on the pedals at a certain point in the race. I need to know that if I'm going to draw the front, I'm going to pull the track stand. And I need to take a deep breath and balance the bike and all that sort of stuff. So I'm just reiterating to myself the plan that we've got um, going forward. And, uh, you know, she goes onto the track first and the crowd welcome her. 6,000 poms in the stand and it was loud. 
Like the decibel reading taken that day was 114. A jet plane takes off at 120. It was loud. Um, And I just sat there with my coach waiting for the crowd to quieten. We let her sit on the the finish line and, uh, you know, take that in. And when the pitch dropped, we knew the focus of the crowd and the British people wasn't on Victoria. It was on me because they were waiting for me to enter for the competition. And so that was when I felt comfortable and to go onto the track and not be overwhelmed if I went on with Victoria Pendleton with that, that crowd support. <laughs> and, um, you know, so the first race goes, she draws the front, she has to lead, and it's a very close race. You know, I lose by one one-thousandth of a second. One one-thousandth? One one-thousandth. Is that even a thing? <laughs> if you want to know the distance of that, yeah. if you draw a lead pencil line on a piece of paper, it's the width of the lead pencil line. No. Four years of preparation to lose by the width of a lead pencil line. So you don't even know when you cross the line? No. Nah, both of us are just looking at the scoreboards, waiting to see who gets the star next to their name that takes the win. The width of a pencil width line? Width of a pencil line. So what's that like when the star goes next to her name? Uh, normally it's pretty gut-wrenching. Uh, but how the race unfolded, I knew I had good speed in the legs. And I came off the track and I said to Gary, I can win this. I'm one down and I've come off the track and I've said to my coach, I can win this. And he goes, I know you can, Mizzy. I said, no, 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 you don't understand, Gary. I can actually win this. He's like, Mizzy, I know you can. That's what we've been working on for four years, Mizzy. <laughs> um, and, you know, by the time I got back to the warm-up area to roll down, this big booming voice had come over. The, and I remember it so vividly. Big booming voice said, ladies and gentlemen, Rider number 110, Victoria Pendleton of Great Britain, has been relegated for impeding the line of her opponent. So what happened? 30 metres before the finish line, we collide. We touch elbows and arms and legs and stuff. Um, And you're allowed to make contact, but there's a a certain line on the track that no one's allowed to cross if you're trying to pass or or in a sprint match. And that's the, the space between the black and the red line. If someone's in that line, which is called the sprinter's lane, um, it's safe zone, designated safe zone, um, because we're travelling at such speeds. If you're trying to pass someone, you can't encroach on that zone as safe as a safety precaution. Likewise, if someone's passing and you're in that sprint lane, you can't exit it in any capacity. So when they go back and they look at the footage, they realise Victoria Pendleton has actually crossed that red line by only four boards, about 10 centimetres. But it's enough to cause a collision. And because I lost by one one-thousandth of a second, uh, the commissaires decided to relegate Victoria, so take the win from her and give it to me. And that's met with the boos of 6,000 mm. people, um, of which, you know, my parents are in the stand and my dad waits till it goes quiet and he stands up, this big burly coal miner, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> Good on you, Dad. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a very contentious decision. When you, know, you look at it, though, she, she did cross the line. She did cross the line, and it's not by much. And I honestly think, um, you know, the same thing happened at the world's three months earlier when we met and she crashed as a result of coming out of that red line and the same commissaire was on on duty in London. I think the replication of the same action from Worlds to London um, didn't do her any favours. So she gets relegated. So now she's one down in front of her home crowd uh, at the London Olympic Games. That's a big psychological blow too. Huge. When you're one up and then they take it off you. And it takes a lot to stay calm, to not get emotional um, and be able to come out and respond. So we go up for the second race and the positions are reversed. I have to lead. So this is where Victoria is in her element because I'm going to be in front of her. 
But this is where we've got our game plan. The secret plan. The secret plan to pull off a track stand that she hasn't seen from me in a year and a half. A track stand is? Is essentially slowing the bike and balancing in, in a standstill at a very, uh, just stopping the bike. Um, if I touch the fence or if I fall, fault on me and uh, it positions, you know, go to advantage Victoria for a restart. You could slide, down, you could slide you down, you could get injured. Um, so I lead off and she sets up with a lot of distance like we're expecting because that's what we've seen from her in a year and a half. Uh, but she's not expecting that I'm going to turn right at the steepest part of the track and eventually bring the bike to a stop. And she, this was a skill we felt she was quite um, unex- inexperienced at and hadn't practised a lot. And so it showed on the day I didn't do it perfectly but I pulled the skill off better than she did, which put her back into the front position, which isn't her strongest, after she's been relegated in front of a home crowd and now she's got two laps to go to think, what am I going to do now? I was not expecting this. And as they say, the rest is history. And you blew her away, really. Yeah, you know, I won by a bike length. And but in, that, in the closest of that rivalry, it's a, it's a decent... It's it, it was a big margin, you know, and I think the only reason I won that day was because I executed my strategy better than my opponent. In straight line speed and qualification, all that separated us was eight hundredths of a second. So physically, we were actually very similar. And it's an interesting thing when you look at it, when you have two physical entities or athletes or products, whatever it is, that are almost exactly the same, what is it that separates them? Why does one win and one not? And Hmm. I honestly believe it's because I'd done a lot of work psychologically to be able to implement the skills and strategies that my team had taught me. And um, I executed them better on the day. And when you, I presume, seeing medal ceremonies before that you all have to gather together or this is the greatest rivalry of the Games, Mm. as you said, it took your sport to a whole other level, which is fantastic. I mentioned that interview where she said she's just so happy it was done. Did you get to speak to her? Yeah. You know what? We actually shared a mirror trying to get our mascara and lipstick done and fix our helmet hair for the podium. (laughs) And it was almost like two women catching up for the first time in 10 years. We didn't really talk cycling, a little bit, but she was, you know, more excited to tell me about her upcoming wedding. I was more excited to tell her about the holiday I was planning, you know, what bar are you going to at the, <laughs> later tonight? <laughs> um, and it was almost like we finally got to step away from this guard or this... Um, facade that we'd put on as competitive, intense, aggressive athletes because we carried the weight of two nations between us, you know, for so long. And I think sometimes even we can forget how hard it is to be number one. Um, But I know I wouldn't have been the athlete that I was and I wouldn't have pushed Mm. as much as I did if it was not for Victoria Pendleton. That would be, in most people's eyes, you've won your second gold medal. Yeah. Um, You've been to three Olympics the most successful female track cyclist of all time. That would, to me, be a natural conclusion to say, <laughs> I'm going to retire. Yeah. A lot of people did. A lot of people thought I'd go out yeah. on top, you know, you're 28 years of age. Well, so why did you want to go to Rio? Like I said before or earlier, I, I through my accident, I, I gained a great appreciation or a gratitude for what I do. And I realised how rare it is to go to Olympic Games is once every four years. Mm. And you know, a lot of athletes strive just to get there once. And I had the opportunity through my hard work and the team that I had and sponsors and my manager to be able to do that at that point three times. And I honestly felt physically 
fantastic in London. And I believed if I went forward to Rio, I could potentially win three more gold medals. And it was realistic. It really was at the time. Um, But I never have been someone that has used success as a single factor in determining whether I stop or start something, you know, because a lot of people go through their whole life trying to find one thing that they love or passionate about that they can dedicate to. I found that. I found it young. I found it early and I found it through sports. So I couldn't understand why people wanted me to give up something that I love doing and hmm. um, where people couldn't understand why I didn't want to give it away because I'd had so much success. Um, I still felt like I could improve. I still loved the competition um, and I love striving and checking boxes and having that routine and structure to to being better. Um, And there were still four things that I hadn't done in the sport that I wanted to have a crack at. So I stayed around another four years to do it. I took a year off and then I squeezed it all into three years. And probably with your lofty standards, you won another medal? At the Olympics, I did. A bronze medal in the Kira. Bronze. Sprint didn't work out the way you wanted it to? No, no. So the the four things I wanted to achieve, first thing was I wanted to break the world record again, the 500. Yep. I was the first woman in the world at 20 years of age to ride sub 34. By this time, I'd been able to drop that world record mark and I'd got down to 33.0. Wow. So I wanted to be the first woman in the world to break 33 seconds as well. Mm. And I did that in 2013, 10 years after Athens. It took me 10 years to improve a second. <sighs> you know, you break that down, it's a one-tenth of a second improvement a year for 10 years. Gee. So these are the small margins we're talking about. You've got a ring out of a body that, you know, is so finely tuned. So I achieved that, first one done. Next one was to win one more world title because in London I was equal best in the world with Felicia Ballinger of France with 10 world titles to my name. And I didn't want to be equal best. I wanted to be the best. Of course you did. So, <laughs> so it would take me three years to do that, but I would achieve it in 2015 and I would meet um, someone there who I idolised in Felicia Ballinger there when I took, took that um, record. The final two pertained to the Olympics and that, that actually pertained to the Kieran and the team sprint. They were the only two events that I have not won gold in the Olympics. Every other level of competition, every other event, I've won every gold medal you can ask for except Olympic gold in Team Sprint and Kieran. So that was my two goals going into Rio. But that changed because life happens. And in the three years preceding Rio, I um, had my marriage breakdown. I got injured. I have really severely injured my lower back. And my longtime coach in Gary West was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. So the three years leading into Rio, I'd taken some significant emotional hits. And when you're emotionally hurting, it's very hard to force yourself to physically hurt. Um, So when I actually came out of Rio, I was exhausted in every capacity. Um, I was really proud to get there. I was really proud to go through what I did and still make uh, the team. I was really proud to be asked to be the flag bearer and the team captain. I would never have got that opportunity if I retired in London. What's that like walking out? And here is Australia, led Uh, by Animeers. Um, Look at the smile uh, on your face. I know, because I can just, (laughs) I've just slotted myself right back in the Maracana Stadium. Um, It's incredible. You know, when I first got asked by Kitty to fill the position, I was really emotional because of what I'd been through. What did she say? Uh, Anna, can we catch up for a coffee? Well, she, Would you like to? Yeah, she she came to the velodrome in Adelaide and obviously this was the first time that they'd um, announced the flag bearer long before the Games. Mm. And so I'm like, oh, shit, 
Oh, sorry, I swore. But, you, yeah, don't um, worry. The, you listen to a few of these. That's <laughs> nothing. Trust me. I'm like, shit, the chefs actually want to yeah. meet with me. I haven't done anything to warrant, like, I've done nothing wrong. <laughs> so she's I'm, a serious chef yeah, too. Yeah, so I'm nervous. I'm so nervous. And she's starting to get a bit choked up. And I'm like, oh, something's happened. What's wrong, kitty? <laughs> you know? And um, and she asked me to be the flag bearer. And I was abs- I just put my hands to my mouth and I bawled my eyes out. I was so emotional. Because I had spent my whole life dreaming of being an Olympian or dreaming of being an Olympic champion. I never contemplated in any capacity that one day I would carry the flag. Hmm. And like I said earlier, Australia has this huge pride invested and intertwined with the history and culture of sport. And it's the same with Olympics. You know, we're one of only two nations that have carried or competed at the modern day Olympics, um, you know, in the world. Without missing, yeah. Yeah, so I would be the 31st person of this country to carry the flag into the stadium and it was magnificent. It's a memory. You know, like when those old school movies where they've got the painted backdrop of the scenery and they're on their horses and they're riding along and it just doesn't look real. Mm. When you walk out the stadium and you and you just hit with noise and you hit with colour and so much emotion and you're just like, don't drop the flag, don't drop the flag. But you look up and there's 110,000 people crammed into the stadium and it just looks like a painting that they've just, they just keep going on and on and on and on forever. And it was way too short. It was way too short. There's something that I wanted to ask you about. If anyone's listened to this, they need to Google Anamir's box jump. Um, <laughs> and it's the most phenomenal thing when we originally discussed that pre-Commonwealth Games. Yep. I remember we showed it and it just blown me away what Anna does in there. But your performance in the gym, for all those that, that are listening that go to the gym, um, give me a couple of numbers. Like what, say what's – as a as a sprinter, I guess it's all – is it all about squats? Weight-wise? Not necessarily. Squats is a big element, but deadlift, leg press, um, you know, leg press is good because it you, you can carry more weight without impacting the back. Right. Give me a couple of numbers. A couple so of numbers? A couple of PBs for okay. the leg press, for example. Leg press. So uh, my body mass as an athlete was 70 kilos. Yep. Um, I could, with one leg, move 250 kilos in the leg press. One leg? One leg. So obviously you pedal one pedal at a time on a bike, so you start to develop um, strength one leg at a time. Uh, 250 kilos one leg in the leg press. That's a lot of 20 plates. It's a lot. And what about the squat? Uh, My best in the squat is 150. 150. How many reps? Uh, One. So that's the bar's 20. So that's 130 added to the bar. So you've got three 20s and a 10 on either side. (laughs) Oh, my God. That deserves a round of applause. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it it was. And um, it just became normal (laughs) until I retired. And I went back into the gym with my brother and I couldn't move 60 kilos in the leg press with two legs. So I spent 20 years building that strength up and in a year, year it's gone. (laughs) That's that's bending the bar stuff. It does bend. Yes, it does does bend. Wow. I tell you, it never bends when I'm in the gym. I'll give you the tip right now. Hey, Anna, people that listen to this podcast a lot um, are aware of my two children, who you met briefly, Sky, who operates under the name of The Pickle, and Mac, who changed his name a few years ago of his own accord to The Big Penguin, and that's like he, that's that's it, the way he likes to roll. Now, unusually, their mother is away at the moment, so I am babysitting. So I normally get them to record a question into the phone, yep. which we then play to the guest. Um but, but they're here today. They are here and they're coming in. So for the first time, they're hey. doing their question live. Right. Right. So here who we wants go. To go first? Sky. 
No, oh, you're up Big Max just throwing Sky under it. All right, Big Peng. Big Penguin. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So you look at Anna, mate. The first time you're doing it live, so no pressure. Here we go. Hi, Hang Anna. Hang on, mate. Hang here we go. Okay. Hi, Anna. Big Penguin here. I can go really fast on my bike. How fast have you ever been on your bike? Oh, that's well, a great done. question. Well delivered. Thank you. I can go at about 68 kilometres an hour. So that would probably be a little bit faster than when your parents might drive you to school in the car. What do you think of that, Mako? Mm. Good? Yeah. Does that sound fast? Yeah. Do you yeah. reckon you could do that faster on your bike no. or not? Yeah. All right. Good question though, mate. All right, Pickle. Thank Good you. Now. Jump in the chair. Live. Yes, you can go back. <laughs> here we go. All right. What have you got? I haven't heard yours. Hi, Anna. Pickle here. I want to be in a gold medalist for triathlon in the Olympics, but I don't know where to keep my gold medals when I win. Where do you keep your gold medals? I love the fact that you're saying when I win my gold medal. <laughs> where do I keep it when I live? It's brilliant. It's love it. Uh, I actually have a lot of my medals on the wall at home. But my Olympic medals are actually in a bank safe. So I'm scared that someone might break in and steal them. And so I keep them um, locked up. So I don't actually see them too often. Every now and then I'll bring them out. And um, it's like a trip down memory lane. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh dear, the lights went out. (laughs) I'm sure Anna would know lots of Olympic triathletes because Anna's been to the Olympics four times. Mm. Triathlon is a very tough sport. You must love your sport. Yeah. Which discipline do you like out of the swim, the run and the ride? Probably the swim. Oh, I thought you might say the ride. (laughs) Good girl. Well, I will keep my eye out for you in future. Good on you, Pickle. Well done. You both got your questions out nicely. Well done. Okay. All right. Um, just on the Olympics, is there, who's the most? Um, I've had the pleasure of being in the Olympic Village, and your head's like on a swivel. Yeah. Um, and that food court is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. Is there anyone you've been starstruck by? A few, a few. I remember my first games in Athens. I run into, literally, run into Ian Thorpe. Thorpe felt like a brick wall, but um, <laughs> I looked up and I was like, I felt like I was sixteen again. I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> Um, But in Beijing, I remember this so vividly. I was lining up to collect my washing and I was checking out the calves of this guy. I'm like, damn, those are some solid calves. Must be a sprinter. And um, and then the place just went into chaotic mayhem. Like they just couldn't find this person's washing. It turned out it was Ruffin and Dahl. Ah. So, yeah, I'm very impressed by Ruffin's calves. Right. Yeah. Right. He is a cool yeah. athlete. He yeah, very, cool very cool. Athlete. So I just stood back and watched the mayhem. <laughs> it was very entertaining. Um. I think we're coming to our natural conclusion. You've been fantastic with your time. As I said earlier on, a lot of a lot of families listen to this podcast, which is really cool. Often I get a lot of messages that, you know, they're taking their kids to swimming or cricket or soccer or, or whatever the sport may be. Um, what do you reckon the key to success is? And that's a question that could take 15 minutes to answer. Yeah. But, but to boil it down, what's the key to success, do you reckon, Anna? It's a, it, yeah, you could take that in any tangent, couldn't you? Um, I think the key to success is is being prepared to work hard and knowing that it's not going to come easy and knowing that you're probably going to lose out a hell of a lot more than you actually are going to win, um, you have to have enjoyment in what you're doing. It's, it's something that you can't force. Um, so I think the secret to success is finding what it is you enjoy to apply yourself to be able to tolerate and be resilient to all the challenges that come. So, yeah, they're probably the biggest ones. And for you, 
um, retired at 33 or 34. We yeah. mentioned that at the start. What's next? What's what next would, for what, me? Yeah, what would you, if you look back in 15 years' time, where would you like to be, do you think? Uh, look, I would love to be able to have my own gallery opening. I'm, I love art, so I'm getting back into art classes and picking up my skills that I had as a teenager again. Um, I would love to hopefully have had my own family at that point. Um, but, yeah, so I hope that I hit triple digits in my age and I hope that I'm still pushing pedals. I reckon you will be. Anna, you're a star. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, as I said. Great chat. I hope so. I, I, as I said, it's just so clear in my mind to sit there with Phil beside me and watching you win that gold medal. And as you said, you're an unknown. It's one of my greatest sporting memories. So to sit here and have a chat with you, it's been, an, uh, it's been a real thrill for me. So thanks for joining us on the Howie Games. Pleasure. Thanks so much to Animeers. For mine, the definition of inspiration and motivation. What a champion. Next week, the show will feature Johnny Aloisi. Until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.